my perspective on this is maybe closest to George's. <laughs> I'm coming out, and I liked his introducing himself as being interested in intelligence in the wild. And I, I, I will uh, copy that. I think that is actually what I'm interested in, too. But it's with a perspective that maybe makes it all in the wild. Um, I see my, my interest in AI really comes from a broader interest in what I think is a much more interesting um, question, which I have no answers to and can barely articulate the question. But it's how simple, lots of simple things interacting emerge into something more complicated and then that then creates the next system out of which that happens and so on. And so I could, it, it's the phenomenon, for instance, chemicals organizing themselves into life or uh, single cellular things organizing themselves into multicellular organism or individual people organizing themselves into society with language and things like that. And I suspect that you know there's more of that organization to happen. I think AI is the AI that I'm interested in is is a higher is a higher level of that. And I suspect that, like uh, like George, I suspect that not only it will happen, but it probably already is happening, and we're going to have a lot of trouble perceiving it um, as it happens. And in th and and. Partly, I think we have trouble perceiving it because the notion that Ian so beautifully described of you know, this sort of the golem or the, that's such a compelling idea that I think we get distracted by it and we imagine it to be like that. And that kind of blinds us to being able to see it, um, as, it as it really is emerging. Um, not that I think such things are impossible, but I just don't think those are going to be the first, the first to emerge. And I know that there's a pattern in all of those emergences, which is really interesting, which is that they, they do start out as analog systems of interaction. And then somehow, like the chemicals, you know, have chains of circular pathways that, you know, metabolize stuff from the outside world and turn it into this circular pathways that are metabolizing. And, and then what happens always is, is the going up to the next level is somehow those sort of analog systems invent a digital system, um, like DNA, where they sort of abstract out the information processing. So they put the information processing kind of in a separate system of its own. And then from then on, the interesting story becomes the story in the information processing rather than the story. In some sense, the information processing system starts to drag along the, the, uh, the complexity happens more in the information processing system. And so that certainly happens again with multicellular organisms. The information processing system is neurons and they put, you know, they eventually go from just, you know, a bunch of cells to having this special information processing system and then that's where the action is in the brains and behavior and you know that allows it drags along makes much more complicated bodies much more interesting once you have behavior and 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 of course it makes 
you know, humans much more interesting when they invent language and can start talking to, you know, but that's a way of externalizing the information processing. In fact, you know, as we build communications line, writing first, and you know, that's sort of our form of DNA for culture in some sense. It's a, this digital form that we invent for encoding knowledge. And then you know, we start building machinery to do information processing, uh, systems and you know, everything from legal systems to communication systems and computers and things like that. So I sort of see that as a repeat pattern. I wish I could you know, say that more precisely and but I, I, I think you all know what I'm, I'm talking about when I wave my hands in that direction. I'm, I think it'd be, you know, somebody will someday make wonderful progress in finding a way of talking about that, that more precisely. But if you apply that to artificial intelligence and, and look at it, um, let me take your springing off point of things beginning. I, I think there's a worry that the singularity people are, is that somehow the artificial intelligence will develop, will become super powerful and develop goals of its own that aren't the same as ours. And so one thing that I'd like to convince you of is, is that I believe that's actually starting, started to happen already. Um, and that we do have intelligences that are super powerful in some, in some senses, not in every way, in some dimensions much more powerful than we are and other dimensions much weaker. That, but the interesting thing about them is I think they are already developing emergent goals of their own that are um, not well aligned necessarily with our goals, with the goals of the people that created them, with the goals of the people that they influence, with the goals of the people that feed them and sustain them and so on. Goals of the people that own them. And, and I think that those early intelligences, they're probably not conscious. So the examples are, um, in, in, in may, you know, it may be that there's one in lurking inside Google or something. I can't, I can't perceive that, but, the, but Google is one. So corporations are examples. Nation states are examples. And so, Corporations are, they're hybrid intelligence, they're artificial, they're actually artificial bodies, that's what the word means, right? They're, they're, they're artificial entities um, that are constructed to serve us, but in fact, what happens is that they don't really, they don't really end up serving exactly the founders, they don't really serve the shareholders, they don't really serve, it's not really the employees that they serve, it's not really their customers that they serve. They kind of have a life of their own. In fact, none of those entities that are their constituents actually have control over them. And I think that that's a very fundamental reason why they don't. I think it's, you know, Ashby's law of requisite variety that, you know, he basically says, you know, in order to control something, you have to be you sort of have to have as many states as the thing you're controlling. And, and therefore, these super, these super complicated super intelligences, by definition, are not controllable by, by individuals. And certainly, you, know, you might imagine that you know, the head of you know, Google actually has, you know, gets to decide what Google does, especially since they're the founder of Google. But you know, if you talk to Larry and Sergey, you'll realize you know, they're pretty out of control of the whole thing. <laughs> And, and, and they're not unique in that respect. I mean, when you really talk to 
you know, heads of state or things like that, mostly they feel powerless. And even if they're in the positions of, of great power, they don't feel as powerful as they are imagined. Yes. yes. They don't so, feel in control of yeah, they don't feel in control. They certainly don't feel in control of, of, of what's going on. And, and they constantly express frustration that people imagine that I can solve this problem. I see this problem, but I can't, I can't solve it, even though I nominally. Yeah, so they're not powerless. They're not purely powerless. That was that was an overstatement, and you know, and, and of course, you know, shareholders try to influence and do influence corporations, but you know, they have limited influence. So people inside uh, companies try to influence them, and, and so on. But one of the interesting things about the 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 emergence of them having goals of their own, the emergent goals, is the emergent goals often tend to successfully thwart, see those influences as sources of noise or something like that. So for example, before information technology, one, corporations couldn't get very big because they just couldn't hold together. So you couldn't have sort of world-spanning corporations that as effectively. East India. Hmm? East India. East India. I'm sorry, what? East India. East India. Sorry. So, China, I mean, China's what you were saying. Is, is I would say that East India Company did not as effectively hold together as an entity and stay coordinated. I mean, they can be big, but I don't think that they were as tightly coupled. Um, but they stopped going bigger partly because of antitrust laws, right? The Standard Oil was. But by the way, by information <laughs> technology, you know, I think certainly it made it. it it yeah. certainly made it much easier. I won't yeah. quibble with you whether there were edge cases. But certainly, yeah, certainly, you know, having the telegraph and the telephone, things like that, you could have skyscrapers full of people that did nothing but hold the corporation together by calling up other people in the corporation. And, and so these, these things are hybrids of technology and people. But one of the things that they do is, is you know, before the technology could enforce, you know, to, as, as they shifted over to have more and more of the decisions being done by the technology, one thing they can do is prevent the people from, from breaking the rules. So it used to be that, you know, if an individual employee could just decide not to apply the policy, the company policy or something like that because it didn't make sense or it wasn't kind or something like that. Then that's getting harder and harder to do because more and more of the machines actually have the policy coded into it and they literally can't solve your pro problem even if they want to. Um, so I think that we've, we've actually got to the point where we do have these super powerful things that do have big influences on our lives. And let me give you an example of sort of emergent behavior. And you know, we just had, so, and, and they're interacting with each other. So the stories that are happening, like let's say the Facebook is a great example. There's an emergent property of Facebook that it started basically enabling conspiracy theory groups. Now it wasn't that you know, Zuckerberg decided to do that or anybody at Facebook decided to do that. That just kind of emerged out of, you know, what their business model was and so on. And then that actually had an impact on, you know, this sort of other emergent thing, which was the government, which was designed for dealing with people, not corporations. But in fact, corporations have learned to hack it. And, and they've learned that they can use their superhuman 
you know, abilities to track details to things like lobby and track details of bills going through Congress in ways that no individuals can. And so they can influence government in ways that individuals can't. So they're more and more the government is responding actually to the pressures of corporations more successfully than the pressures of people because they're sort of superhuman in their ability to do that, even though they may be very dumb in, in some other ways. Well, that's a, that is an example, though, of their success, which is that one of their, one of their successes is, is their, uh, their ability to, grow, to gather resources to get food from the outside world. And so they're, they have been extremely successful at gathering resources to themselves, which gives them more power. So there's a, a positive feedback loop there, which you know, lets them invest in quantum computers and AI and so on, which gets them presumably richer and, and better. And, and so I think we're, we may be already in a world where we have this kind of a runaway situation, which is not necessarily aligned with our individual human goals. And I think you know, people are perceiving it they're perceiving aspects of it, but I don't think it's widely perceived what's happening, is that what's happening is that we have these emergent intelligences. So, um, so for me, I think when I hear people talk, do kind of the hypothetical hand-wringing of these super intelligent AIs that are you know, going to take over the world, I'm like, well, that might happen sometime in the future, but we actually kind of have a real example now. And we actually, we, if we could just figure out how to control those, things, rather than thinking sort of hypothetically how we ought to you know, design the five laws of robotics into these hypothetical general AI sort of human-like things, Let's, let's actually think, you know, how can we design the five laws of robotics or computers into corporations or something like that? We ought to be able to do that. ought to be an easier job. If we, if we could actually do that, we ought to be able to apply that right now. Yeah, or, 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 or something like that. But I think, it's, I, I think this is not just a metaphor. I think this is actually a serious, literal problem. I mean, one example of that is what rights do they have? And the Supreme Court recently said they have the right of free speech, which means they can contribute to political you know, campaigns. The historian, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but the historian David Runciman, I found out about this just because he was giving a talk at NIPS, who's a historian at Cambridge, has made exactly, exactly this argument, exactly about corporations and nation states. But he's made the argument, which I think is quite convincing, that this is from the origin of corporations and nation states, that it's, it's from industrialization, that that's when you start getting these these agents. And then there's some questions you could ask about whether you had analogous, you had analogous super individual agents early on. So maybe, you know, just having a forager group is already having a, uh, a forager community is already having a super intelligence compared to the individual members of the and community. And it's, it's fairly clear that that kind of increased social complexity is very, very deeply related to some of the things that we more typically think of as being uh, as being intelligences. So we actually have a historical example of those things appearing and those things changing the way that human beings function in important and significant ways. And you know, for what it's worth, at the same time, the the data is that individual human goals 
got much better on average, right? I mean, you could certainly argue that there were things that happened with industrialization that I mean, set back. Get better. Well, that people got healthier, that they, I mean, you know, right. stopped, yeah, exactly. They stopped having accidents. They, okay, okay, you know, I mean, this, they stopped being struck by lightning. Uh, uh, you know, someone like Rosling has these has these long lists that are mm -hmm. like that. So, so we do so, have a historical example of these superhuman intelligence is happening and they could it could have been what people thought at the time was that the effect of that was going to be that that uh, individual goals would be frustrated and you know if you were if you were um, trying to graze your sheep on the commons then the those indivi those individual goals you, you weren't better off as a result but you know it certainly isn't it certainly doesn't seem like there's any principle that says that what would happen is that the the goals of the corporations, et cetera, would be misaligned. I think it's stuff, a, a matter you know? of, of power balance. And so, you know, certainly humans aren't powerless to influence those goals. And I think one of the things, though, that we may be toward tipping the balance because a lot of technological things, I think, have helped enable the power of these very large corporations to coordinate and act and gather resources to themselves more than they've enabled the power of, of individuals to influence them. Do you think that the research done? Have, have you finished your talk? Well, I guess I have, yeah. <laughs> so I was going to go back to the East India Company because I realized <laughs> when I said that that in fact the East India Company did develop an information technology and became the education system of <laughs> through elementary schools of people being able to write uniformly, do calculations, arithmetic writing, enabled their information technology that individual uh, clerks were substitutable across their whole operation. So they actually did. Yeah, and in fact, and they did some pretty horrible things that were pretty against, I mean, I would say they did, the East India Company did some pretty inhuman but, so they things. Example so, thing. They're actually yeah. an example of what so, Al Gore made a really interesting comment. He said um, he viewed the Constitution as a program written for a distributed computer. Yeah. And, and, and it, it is a really interesting comment that if you take what you're saying seriously, to think about sort of what is the programming language. It's, well, it's legalese. <laughs> Programming language is legalese. I think that the, Corporations the, used to the, have the algorithms of homophily are a huge part of the problem. The, you know, the Explain reputed, the reputed um, echo chamber okay, that magnifies small differences so you get conspiracy theories, which is a kind of the schizophrenic model is hyperconnectivity. Right? You have everything connects to this conspiracy theoretical model. So homophily as I learned from Wendy Chung, is at its core of the programming language, like begets like, as distinguished from the parallel study in the 50s of, you know, birds of a feather don't flock together and difference attracts, right? So these were two models in the 50s that were at the core of this game theoretical, you know, algorithmic thinking, and everyone went with like begets like, which produces the echo chamber. So the first question is about hybridity. So the DNA model has been radically complicated by translocation, right? So it's not the case that they're perfect clones, right? You, you mentioned 9 out of 10 E. coli, but there's the 1 tenth, yeah, which, which has information from the chimeric gene that I have floating around me from, you know, my son, you know, when he was passing 
in my amniotic fluid, whatever, right? There's translocation going on all the time. So there's not this, in other words, do we have a resource there in this ongoing hybridization of the program? Do we have a resource, of, a point of inflection? And to, to Bob's rights comment, we also are giving rights, not we, but the Bolivian Constitution is giving rights to the ocean, to a tree, to cetaceans, right? So can this dialogue with others, with other life forms, with other sentiences, you know, somehow break the kind of horrifying picture of the corporate superintelligences? Are there other translocatable, you know, informational streams that can kind of be magnified um, or the algorithms be switched to proliferate differences and dialogue and external influences rather than the continuous proliferation of the self-same. So, first I, I'm going to say, I don't think it's necessarily horrifying because I don't think we have no influence over this. So, um, I, I agree that this has been going on for a long time. But we do but, have the model of a government being put in place by algorithms that we no longer control demographically. Yeah. And, we and, have an and, actual case. Yeah, so, uh, but the, the, the second thing is, I think that the question is, I think the trend is very much in the direction of the next level of organization, which is corporations, nation states, and things like that, actually taking advantage of these effects, like, right. you know, um, symbiosis, uh, um, That's called strategic sharing. partnerships. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, it is. Uh, or right, or um, you know, acquisition of genetic material is is done by acquisition, and you know they have lots of ways of taking advantage of hybridization that is actually better than individuals. So in fact, I think the the technology has has kind of hurt the individual interactions, as you point out, the way that it's played out. Um, and in many ways harmed it. it. It's helped it in some ways. It's been a mixed bag. Um, but I think it's definitely enabled the corporations because the corporations before were limited just by the logistics of scale. So they became more and more inefficient and except in very special cases they couldn't hold together as they got bigger. Technology has given them the power to hold together and act effectively bigger and bigger, which is now probably, you know, we've just gotten in the last year the first two trillion dollar companies. Um, because they were designed from the beginning to take good advantage of, of technology. Do you think, do you think that there's a characteristic difference between the kind of research that goes on in the corporate, under the corporate umbrella than university umbrella, say? I mean, is there, I mean, I can, I know people have lots of views about this and there are things you can do in university, you can't do in the university, in, in, in one and the other, but how would you characterize in particular areas of AI related I think, work? I think corporations are much more rationally self-interested in how they focus their research. Oh, you mean they're all allocating resources more efficiently? They're choosing better, they're, they're, they're more effective at, at uh, promoting promising research areas? Is that what you're suggesting? They're, they select research areas that increase their, that, that are in alignment with their emergent goals. Yeah, yeah but, but they're doing an additional thing now, which is very interesting, and they're taking the cream 
from the universities, yeah, right. offering yeah. them very open uh, uh, intellectual positions as a way of attracting the, the level below who will be more steerable to what they do. Right. So Google and Facebook are both doing this in the extreme at the moment. Yeah, I, I think it's very yeah. smart of them, but I think that those, that those, particular, of them, those particular people will tell you what great freedom they have. Uh, so I think that's a great example of them being very smart and effective at channeling the energy toward their emerging goals. So Stephen has something. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm curious, as you look at the emergent goals of corporations and so on, I mean, it's difficult to map how the goals of humans have evolved over the years, but I'm curious whether you can say anything about what you think the, the trend of emergent goals in corporations is. That is, what, what you know, beyond kind of... You know, if, you, if you talk about human goals, you can say something about how human goals have evolved over the last few thousand years, I think. I mean, some goals have remained the same, some goals have changed. You know, the... the hey, I'll try my hand at it. Yeah. Um, as there, when there's a lot of uh, operations in the same niche, they're competitive. When they get to be one, well, when they get to be two, they often become uncompetitive. So instead of trying, they might try, if one is substantially bigger, it might try to destroy or gobble up the other one. But otherwise, it might try to cooperate with the other one against the interest of the consumer. It's called it, you know, anti-trade. Mm -hmm. um, and also, when they get, as they get bigger, they also want to control their broader environment, like regulations. They, they have a, a small company is not going to, uh, a restaurant is not going to try to control the, the regulation of restaurants. But if you have a huge chain, um, then you can try to control your the, the governmental context in which you are, and you could also um, try to control the consumer side of it too. Advertising is a simple way to do that. Um, so, it, it, as the corporations get bigger, I think there's an unfortunate tendency that the um, the industrial competition goes down. And we see this in big and high tech. It's really very extreme. I mean, there's uh, there's only you know five huge ones, and they're doing different things. I mean, you know, Apple's doing manufacturing, and Amazon is not doing much manufacturing. Um, and that's likely to continue, not not just in the high tech areas, but in others. And I, I think it's very worrisome that the corporations will get more and more um, resources to shape their own environment. And their, re and their goals are not just, I mean, at the lower level, and you know, the restaurant or something, you, you have two goals. One is to make money for your owners, and the other is to survive. Um, but when you get much bigger, um, it seems to me that often the goals are to, uh, beyond those two, are to also control as much of your environment as you can. For the purpose of stability. Or for further growth? For both, for both. And I think, and, and I, I think it, uh, it, it, well, and there's another trend that's correlated with this, which is the concentration of capital. At the individual level, you see it, a higher and higher proportion of the wealth of a country is in the top 1%. I think is, that's a symptom of them getting much more Maybe. I think it's a symptom of the uh, returns on capital greater than the growth of pro productivity, which doesn't depend so much on the level of organizational structure. 
So you're attributing to something. No, I think it's going to get, well, it's good. So the cooperation, the cooperations are likely to have more and more control over um, resources. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. It's a very, very risky thing. So it's kind of virtues and vices of corporations. I mean, do you think the corporations will emerge with, with the same kinds of virtue and vice type goal structures that, that are attributed to humans? Well, you, I mean, I'd say that Volkswagen's cheating. I, I, I feel like we should, let, we should have a little I, more people. I, I'm just going to say one thing that Danny is very much Danny's work, and what he didn't say is that. The, the world we inherited from the 1940s that brought the, the first Macy conferences, the, the huge competition was faster computers to, to break the code within 24 hours to, to, to design the bombs. These things were speed and what thinking machines was trying to do to get more instructions per second. And But there's another side of it. There's slow computing. It actually, in the end, for the survival of the species, and that's like where the immune system is so good because it's a very long-term memory, and we need that too. We don't just need the speed. And, and Danny, of course, is building the 10,000-year clock, a very, very slow computer. But that's an important thing, because when you have these, these larger organizations, the super organizations you're talking about, they scale not only in size and distance, but in time. And that's a good thing, because the corporations, or it can be a bad thing too, you can have a, a dictator that lasts for a thousand years. But it's well, a very don't scale the time though, right? That that even when they get bigger, they seem to have a they seem to have a very predictable they seem to have this very predictable life, right? That's why people like Jeff West. Right, Jeffrey right. Jeffrey will say that. But anyway, it's a very important uh, possibly good function of these systems as as we're that we're we're gonna get a longer term, you know, longer term computing where you look at look at the very long time series and that that Evolutionary will be a good thing. I, I mean, one question is, you, know, you historically we have places like AT&T, IBM, Xerox that had really world-class labs that over time deteriorated. I mean, AT&T laboratories is nothing remotely like what it was like in the 1960s and 50s. And they expelled a lot of research eventually because it wasn't you know, short-term enough for them. And they figured they'd offload that to the universities get and then take the fruits of it and do things that were more short term. So one possible outcome is that even the places where they're hiring people at a high level and giving a tranche of the research group uh, relative freedom as a sort of cover and attractor, you might not, that might not even, that one outcome is that that could expand, but it could also pull back and you could end up with, you know, pulling, you know, wrecking parts of the university and not having a lot of freedom in the corporation. I don't know. I just think that, I mean, it's a, it seems to me an open question what's going to happen with this concentration of research wealth at a few companies. And I, th I, think, I think the wealth is the important part. When AT&T Labs was riding high, AT&T was a monopoly of the yeah. phone company of the whole country, had incredible cash uh, flow. They were required by law to spend money. But the fact is, I, I think basic research happens when there's a monopoly. Because if you have a monopoly, then it's worth your while to do basic research because whatever is figured out will only benefit you. I mean, you see that even at the level of the U.S. government. Did you hear Frank's comment that AT&T was required by the government to do required research? Required by law to right? keep their profits at a certain level. 
So they spend well, so much on research. Monopoly no. will never regulate itself. And they put themselves out of business. That is the definition. Even in our tiny corners of, of the technology world, you know, it's worth our while to do basic research in things where we are the only distribution channel, basically. And the same thing is happening with, with a bunch of AI stuff that's being done. In, the, in places where the only beneficiary is a company with a large distribution channel, that you know, it's, there's motivation to do basic research. There, as soon as you remove that monopoly, the motivation to do basic research goes away for a, from a sort of rational corporate point of view. But I mean, I think there are cases where you can tie this very directly to AI. So the best example of this, I think, is the Facebook feed management algorithm. <laughs> so that's a situation. So Nick Bostrom has this thought experiment about you know. Uh, machines that you know you, you, you make an AI where the goal of the AI is to manufacture paper clips and then it consumes the entire earth manufacturing paper clips. Tristan Harris has pointed out that the Facebook feed management algorithm is essentially that machine but for human attention where <laughs> it consumes human attention, makes money as a consequence of doing so, that's fed back into the mechanisms for consuming human attention. It gets better and better at consuming human attention until you know, we've we've paper clipped ourselves. That's, that's true. That's true for all of these companies. Yeah. So that's why I think this is we're in a kind of an, anybody who has teenage children knows that there's a an attention problem down here. Yeah. So I mean, the attention deficit. I, I would push back against that. Right? I mean, I, I don't. I think that I think that idea is is highly exaggerated. And and let me give you the reason why I think that. If you think about walking down a street or driving down a street and having billboards around. If you were in a first-generation literate culture, what you would say is, there's this terrible problem. As you go down the street, every second what you're doing is having your attention distracted by having to decode what this stuff is, right? There's all these symbols, and you sit there, and you decode the symbols, and you're not actually paying attention to anything that's going on the street. Your attention is terribly divided. And we know even, I mean, even neurologically that what actually happens is when you are deeply immersed in a literate culture, you end up with Stroop effects where your decoding of your decoding of print isn't attention demanding in the same way. It, it do, you're not doing it by serial attention anymore. In fact, you're doing it completely automatically and in parallel. So, so that, I mean, that, it's just not, it, it's something that we all worry about because we're in the position of the, of the pre-literate, we're in the position of the pre-literate person. It's not at all obvious that this is somehow an intrinsic characteristic. Well, but I think it's, it's a real-time adversarial arms race. Yes. Yeah. Can I bring this back to the Yeah, I'd like to bring this back to the AI part of the, the, the comment rather yeah. than the, the social part of the comment, which is I think that it's, it's absolutely, that's a, a great example of right now, if you look at where artificial intelligence is being deployed on a large scale, where people are spending a lot of money paying the power bills for, you know, doing the computation, things like that. They are mostly being done in the surface of, of these kind of either, either corporations or nation states, and mostly corporations, but nation states are rapidly catching up on that. And, and they are making those more powerful and more effective at working their emerging goals. And I think that that is the way that this relates. So I think that when we, you know, when we think of these runaway AIs, I think we should think of them as not things off on themselves. They're actually, they're the brains of these runaway things that are already these hybrid AIs. And so they're the, the artificial brains or the artificial nervous systems of these things that are already 
hybrid AIs and already have emerging goals of their own. And right, and so this is uh, to say why I disagree with you about this. I mean, I, I, I told all oh, kids these days, you know, back in the 1960s, they're watching TV five hours a day, right? And that's horrible. I, though I enjoy preparing for the grumpy old man stage of my life, and I like practicing that. But, <laughs> but I do think that there is a, if you look what these AIs are being devoted for, the primary use of them is to get people's attention to web pages. Well, whether it's attention or dollars or or votes, it really almost doesn't matter. And the designers will tell you that they're using the lowest brainstem functions. That's part of the, that's part of the problem. They'll tell you they're racing to the bottom of the evolutionary channel as quickly as they can. If there's anything valuable that is valuable to them, they will use this power to get it. And, you know, there will be you know, there'll be problems with that and there'll be limits on that and so on. And you're pointing out some of the limits in getting attention and there'll be limits in their ability to get money and there'll be limits in their ability to get electric power and, you know, and so on. But they will use all of these tools to get as much of it as they can. But, but again, Danny, I mean, the, the, my challenge would be, is that any different than it was for Josiah Wedgwood in 1780? Yes, it's, the, it's a tip in power. So the why, is it a, power, why, why is it a tip in power when it, well, I mean, it seems to me you could argue that it was much more of a tip in power if you're considering, you know, 1710, you consider the difference between being around in 1730 and 1850, because, right? Because, for example, for the East India Company, they couldn't establish a policy and monitor that everybody did that policy. But that's Google exactly... Can, Google can do that. That's exactly what, I mean, that's exactly what people like Wedgwood did, right? That was the whole part of the whole point of inventing industry, inventing factories, was, right, but, was but, exactly but, doing right, that. Right, but in fact, they couldn't do it very, very East India had to translate itself right. to a language with an army, which was right. the British Empire. And so there are meshes between corporations and governments that we really have to worry about, like the one we have right now. So I'm not saying that we don't have to worry about that or there isn't power. What I'm saying is we have a historical, the, the question is why is it that you think that this is a tipping point? All right, so you know, it looks like there's this general phenomenon which is that you develop these trans individual super intelligences and they have certain kinds of properties and they tend to have power and they have goals that are separate. All that's true, but we have a lot of historical evidence and it might be that what's happening is that, that there's more of that than there was before. Well, more but why do you think that somehow it's a tipping point, that this is a point at which this is going to be well, different all, I, from... I didn't say... Uh, I, there could be a tipping point. I'm not sure exactly now. What I am saying is that there's a rapid increase, there's an explosion of their intelligence. So there's a so these explosive technologies, which are driven by Moore's Law and things like that, are being used to their advantage, not necessarily. There are very few examples where they're being used to individuals' advantage. There are lots of examples where they're being used to the advantage of these, of these hybrid emerging intelligences. That's a very, that's a very good example because um, between 1730 and 1850, the the life expectancy and degree of nutrition and height of the average person in England declined yeah. because so they were being taken off of the off of the out of you know the countryside and locked into factories for ninety hours a week. So this is exactly that's like exactly why I think I mean there's historians there's historians here. That's why I think thinking about these historical examples is actually is actually helpful. So if you think about the diff the scaling difference between uh, let's say. Um, 
pre-telegraph and train, right? So if you think about the difference in scale between the communication that you could have before you had the telegraph and afterwards, and before you had the train and afterwards, for all of human history, right, the fastest you could go was the fast, the speed, the fastest communication you could have was the speed yeah, of a fast horse. And then suddenly you have communication at the speed of light. It seems to me there's nothing that I can see in what but is I, happening I, at the moment I, that's I, anything. I realize, that I realize what their difference is. <laughs> I, I think of that as now. So, so when I'm thinking of, of, when I'm saying this is happening now, I'm including railroads and telegraph. And, I mean, this moment in history includes all of that. So that's the thing that's happening right now. So that's industrialization. That's essentially industrialization. That's essentially well, industrialization. That's that's, I'm, 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 not, I'm not categorizing. I, I, I think industrialization focuses on the wrong aspect. So a lot of things happen at once, and you categorize them. But um, the particular thing that I think is interesting, which mm -hmm. happened at the same time as industrialization, was the, the construction of an apparatus of communication of symbols and policies and things like that that was outside the capacity of a human mind to follow. And I think that's the interesting thing, not the construction of the, not, there are many other aspects of industrialization. But I think that's the thing that's happening now, and I think computers and AI and things like that are just that going up on an exponential curve. Right. And that's what I mean. I think seeing this moment of increased poverty and, and stagnation of wages for a big sector of society, an enormous increase of wealth within a concentrated group, and the consolidation of, the, of industries like Amazon and others is something that's, 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 that is that does represent the sharp edge of that increase. You know, yeah. It's not just a simple linear continuation of what went before. I mean, in the post-war era, post-World War II era, you know, there was a sense that people were able in families to go to college for the first time to get loans, at least if they were white. And that meant that you had a big class that had increased expectations and in increased income and, and you know, that's, you know, we're, we're seeing the echoes of what happens when that stops, when you're basically not bringing new people into the college system, you're not giving them increased stakes in homes and real estate and, and things that increase in value, and, you know, it, we're at a tough moment. One argument that's often made by the technology companies is we're not doing anything different, right? You know, this is something that's been done in the past and we're just doing it better. But I think there actually is a case that you can make that doing it better is different. It's that you know the objective function is the same, but you're doing a better job of optimizing it. And one consequence of that is that you get all of the unforeseen consequences of doing a good job of optimizing that objective function, which may not have been clear when you were doing a bad job of optimizing that 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 function. So you know, in machine learning, we talk about regularization, right? Regularization is forces that pull you back from overfitting on your objective, and you can think about you know, not being able to do a great job of optimizing as a form of regularization that was helping us to avoid all of the negative consequences of really optimizing the objective functions that those those companies had defined for themselves. Also, they say we're doing the same thing, but they also say we like to break stuff. And breaking stuff often means breaking the, social the, in the income of working class Yeah, but it's, it's, enough, it's enough that doing the same thing better is the thing that then reveals why it's bad to do that thing.
yeah, you move everybody into the, you know, half the people in the gig economy and take away their benefits. And, but it's fine. Well, so why should they have to have a contract? Or so if, if you sort of go back to the other perspective and you say, okay, well, in a sense, is, let's say, a single cell better off being a part of a multi-cellular yeah. organism that they can't perceive that's yeah. you know, living in a society that they can't perceive. And I would argue that it's a mixed bag, but generally they are. Yeah, right. That's right. And, and so I'm actually kind of optimistic in, in, in that sense. I mean, if you think the train in the telegraph is the inflection point rather than, you know, the last 10 years is the inflection point. I think it's pretty hard to make, with the proviso that, you know, people are off of, off of the commons and and there's pollution and tuberculosis and all the rest. I think the data are that if you think of the train and telegraph as an inflection point, that the individual achievement of goals got, I mean, didn't just get better, but got exponentially better. So, um, so what I think of is, I don't, I don't I, I, again, I'm not saying there's an inflection point. I think that we're going through a transition. And so we're in the middle of a transition from going from one level of organization to another level of organization. What if we ask questions? Yeah, but but for instance, individual cells had to give up the ability to reproduce. They had to, yeah, you know, right. they had to <laughs> delegate it That's to. A lot. Yeah, <laughs> that was a big, yeah. So so I think we will lose some things in that yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think we will lose some things in that process. We'll gain some things in that process, but I'd I'd really like. I mean, for all I'm mostly arguing for is. We don't have to hype it. I, I think we're spending too much time worrying about the hypothetical, right. and no, it'd be right. better to actually look at the actual. Um, I mean, the most important thing that's happening in this century is China getting rich. Mm -hmm. Everything else, to me, is secondary. That's where I started to. Yeah. Can I just start to say, that, I mean, there's the description of the state of things, but then to ask what is to be done, as it were. and. One aspect of humanizing, let's call them robots, AI, whatever you like, would be to tax them as humans. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when they replace workers in factories or accountants or white collar jobs and all the pattern recognition professions. But then we would all have a stake. Then we would all have a stake. You see, that's an example where may have passed a tipping point, which is that the corporations are now politically powerful enough to keep their tax rates low. Yeah. And not only that, but the billionaires are powerful enough exactly. to keep their tax rates low, for example, inheritance tax. And this is what I think we need to resist, that the point at which, perhaps in, in 50 years' time, vast sections of the population are only going to be working 10 or 15 hours a week. And we might have to learn from aristocracies of how to use leisure. <laughs> how to hunt, how to fish, how to play the harpsichord. Um, in other words, it's perfectly possible, and anyone who speaks of retirement, and we were talking about this in a break, how busy you can be doing nothing. But somehow we have to talk of distributing wealth and function here. I mean, that's, uh, that's the next conference. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think Bob's point is, this is a sense in which it really, the rubber meets the road. Where is actually taxing corporations? We've, that that window has passed. We've lost that. Yeah. They now have more power than individuals do in influencing the political system. So there's an example of you know where the train has left the station. We're now in a post-individual human world. We're now in a world that is 
controlled by these emerging goals of the corporations. And I don't think there's any turning back the clock on that. I think we are now in that 